Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Stephen Moore, who co-authored the book, All Roads Lead to the Birchmere, America's Legendary Music Hall, with its founder, Gary Olsey, in 2021. For those not familiar with the Birchmere, it is about the most important independent American music hall in the United States, located in Virginia, just across the bridge from Washington, D.C. This is our fourth music-centric podcast, having spoken previously to Allison Moorer, Max Weinberg, and Stevie Van Zandt. We are also thrilled to have had the chance to speak to Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits about the Birchmere. That conversation can be heard at the very end of this interview with Stephen. Stephen, welcome to That Said. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it's really great to be here. I'm glad you invited me to participate, and I'm happy to talk about the Birchmere. The book, All Roads Lead to the Birchmere, America's Legendary Musical, with its founder, Gary Olsey, is a great read for people who love music. Tell us about Gary Olsey and your relationship and what he was trying to do in the creation of the Birchmere back in 1966, I think, right? 60s, well, let me tell you about Gary, because number one is that Gary grew up in Owensburg, Kentucky. He was a musician. He played guitar with his brother, played in bands. He hung out and knew the Everly Brothers, and that was about the circa when Everly Brothers was just starting out. And he knew Ike Everly. Ike Everly was sort of a, uh, a friend of the Gary's. He sometimes... He was in band contests, and Ike was the judge. So he kind of knew music. He was an authentic Kentucky guitar player, and he knew music, and he grew up in that milieu. Now, Gary joined the Navy, and the way he would tell it is that when he got to the Navy, he saw a whole new world. He met uh, black people. He never seen black, He never knew black people where he was living in Kentucky. He got to know Black people, he got to know blues. He got to know how to do things for the Navy, and he's a real smart fellow. So he came out of the Navy, and he was pretty much, I think, his personality was intact at that point. He met somebody who offered him a job to um, manage this little restaurant, and it was in the strip mall. It was called the Birchmere. He became the manager, and uh, a fellow walked in one day. English guy named John Longbottom, who's in the book. I went back, and if they're alive, I found them. I did 165 interviews with people that played the Birchmere, and uh, that's that was exciting for me because I got to know Vince Gill and Chris Hillman and Arla Guthrie and people that I've just loved all my life. They all love Gary. They all play. They played the Birchmere like every year they come back. They didn't have to come back from the money. They could sell out Wolf Trap. They could sell out Carnegie Hall. But they came out because of Gary. So Gary started playing music with this John Longbottom just for fun during the day because it was primarily a uh, well, kind of bar at night and maybe a, some lunch trade during the day, but it wasn't a music place. He would just kind of jam with John. And he eventually started a band called the Old Five and Dimers, which was the Shaver hit song. Uh, Billy Shaver, I think his name is. And they played for a while, and then Gary decided that he would hire some musicians to come in and play and make it a music place. So that was around 1974. 
So even though the place was open 66, music didn't really start until 74. And the first people he hired were bluegrass musicians because bluegrass at that point in D.C. was a big deal. Uh, because of the country gentlemen seldom seen and uh, other bluegrass musicians that would come through town and because of the success of Bonnie and Clyde and bluegrass kind of took off, it became commercialized in the same way that Peter, Paul, and Mary commercialized folk music, if you know what I mean. And Duffy and the, and the country gentlemen, they had an ear for taking ballads and songs that were not bluegrass and kind of bluegrassy them up, and they did that. And when the Southern scene started in 71, Gary really wanted them to come and play at the Birchmere. They were playing at the Red Fox, which is in a, a, a kind of a place that was – fun. Emmy Lou Harris played there a lot. I used to go there all the time. And this is another key thing that Gary did. At those days, the, uh, the country and western and bluegrass bars, I mean, they were bars. They were dives. They had a, a you know, color TV on the bar, and they had bowling machines, and everybody was drunk. I mean, they were. I was there. I, everybody was drinking a lot. And it was pretty loose, and they had the bluegrass people playing, and Gary didn't like that. His model at the time and what he based the Birchmere on was a place called the Cellar Door. That was run by Jack Boyle. He won it in a poker game. I went to Georgetown. But Jack Boyle was a Georgetown guy. And uh, Jack Boyle had a card that he had on the table, silence. Please do not talk while the performers are playing deference to the musicians. And Gary thought, if I'm going to have music, I want people to listen. And he kind of barred. He said the way he would say it, I stole those cards and put them on the table. He said, I had to look up what deference meant. He didn't, he didn't know what that meant. And uh, then he uh, would start it. He had a bouncer named Pudge, and he would kick people out if they didn't shut up. I asked him one time, well, how'd that go? And he says, well, one time there's 28 people in the place. I kicked like 20 of them out. I had to kick them out. They wouldn't shut up. I said, well, how does that work? He says, well, after a while, there's usually one person in a group that was you know, entertaining everybody. And I'd kick that person out. And then the people would say, man, I'm so glad you threw him out. And Gary would say, well, why'd you come with the blank to begin with? And that's kind of funny. Anyway, so he made that uh, he made that stick. And because music and the listening part of it was very important, that in combination with the fact that Gary was really a smart guy, humble, quiet, great sense of humor, but really brilliant. He's a brilliant business guy. And... Uh, Having a listening club that was first bluegrass, then country and western, then it became blues. He brought in blues people. Then it became really R&B. He hired all kinds of people. And uh, it gradually grew. And people knew two things about the Birchmere. One is, I might know, I'm talking like these people. I might not know who that group is, but they got to be pretty good if Gary hired them. That's number one. So you could always go there even if you didn't know who you're going to see. You'd see something good. And also you would hear it. Gary invested 
a lot of money over the years to keep the, the technology of the music really sharp. He did everything himself when he started. He cooked. He was the sound guy. He was the South Seldom Scenes manager. He uh, ran the books. He did the contracts. I mean, he was all over the place. And he did it really well. But um, there was, I'm going to switch right now to something that's key to the Birchmere's uh, progression. Tony Rice, the great guitarist. I mean, Tony Rice is one of the greatest. Uh, I won't call him a flat picker. He's more than that. But he's an incredible singer. He passed away a year and a half ago. He uh, he played the Birchmere, and, and Tony and Gary became friends. And Tony had a rough patch in his life. He got a, got a divorce. And he and his friend Billy Wolf were having a pity party, as Gary said, was drinking and just doing grief because both their wives had left them, and they were kind of down and out. And Gary called him up and said, look, come back, come down to D.C. I will take care of you. I'll get you back on your feet. I'll manage you. You know, you got to stop fooling around. So when Tony Rice came back to uh, D.C. and lived with Gary, he brought a guy named Billy Wolf with him. Now, Billy Wolf, look him up. Billy Wolf uh, produced music with Jerry Garcia and David Grisman. He played bass in the Fugs band. Billy Wolf is an amazing individual. And when he came with Tony, Gary put Billy Wolf in charge of the music, the technology. So Billy immediately started bringing in really good stuff. And Billy's gone on to uh, really help so many groups, Eddie from Ohio and Tom Paxton, a lot of records that you can find live at the cellar door. Billy produced those. And Billy had disappeared when I started writing the book. Nobody actually knew where he was, and Gary hadn't seen him for several years. And I found him and brought him back to the Birchmere so he could be part of this book. So he's got a lot of stories in the book. And he's a great guy, very fascinating. I love Billy Wolf. So Billy is one of the people that Gary hired that gave the uh, Birchmere the sound. I have to say to the listening audience, one very sad thing is that Steve and I were scheduled to do this interview a couple of months ago, but life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans, as John Lennon told us, and it got postponed, and in the intervening weeks, Gary passes away. So this interview was to have taken place with Steve and Gary and myself, and so part of why we're talking about Gary in the past tense is his very recent passing. So he had we'll take a moment to reflect on the fact that he's gone, and but his legacy is here with us still. Yeah, very sad. Everybody is still getting over that because he, he turned 80 in August. He had his 80th birthday, and Gary was always indestructible. He, he, he was there 14, 15 hours a day. Everybody was amazed at his energy. I was. I mean, I worked with him for two years on this book, and it was hard to keep up with him. And uh, But he did have – he got shingles, and then he, uh, he had a stroke. And we thought he was going to come back. He was making some progress, but then he passed away peacefully. Then it's really uh, – they're carrying on, but it's, it's, hard. it's hard to be without Gary because he really was such a, a wonderful person. We so, all miss him. For sure. By your estimate, there were about 
19,000 performances at the Birchmere since its I, inception? Yeah, since music came in, I think there are there were 19,000 discrete acts on the on the stage. That's uh, we have. I have a spreadsheet I put together that has almost everybody. Then I have all the calendars, and I think I kind of figured that out. That would mean sometimes there might be two opening acts. So on a one night there might be two opening acts, and then you know. Um, Whatever was the main group that played, Ichani Cast, for example. So that would be three acts. And when you multiply three times all the days that they had shows, it works out over 30, 35 years. It works out to about 19,000 discrete acts. So we talked about the seldom seen as one of the first big acts that came to the Birchmere and, and how it was a bluegrass venue in its uh-huh. earliest stage and then it, it morphed into other types of music. One of the artists who was one of the early acts in the evolution of the club was uh, Jerry Jeff Walker. So can you uh-huh. talk a little bit about Jerry Jeff and some of the friends of Jerry Jeff who would show up at the concerts? Well, Jerry Jeff was, uh, as you know, was part of what I would call the Texas group. And Gary liked the Texas singer-songwriters. His favorite was Mickey Newberry. Then you had Guy Clark, uh, the most iconoclastic, and actually I think probably the best songwriter was Talon's Van Zant. Uh, Chris Christopherson came to Birchmere. All these people were friends. I mean, they lived in Nashville. They're from Texas. And uh, Jerry Jeff Walker was one of them. So, and just Jerry, as an audience, of course, remembering that Jerry Jeff Walker is the writer of the iconic song "Mr. Bojangles," covered by later right. Burt Dirt Band. Yeah, and he he was great. And he was a great performer. And uh, so, I never saw Jerry Jeff there. And unfortunately, Jerry Jeff was sick, but he couldn't talk. He, he had a problem with his vocal. Uh, thing going as as he was passed away. Half the book is when Jerry Jeff, but I wanted to interview him, but he couldn't talk, and that was really a shame. I talked with his wife, but these people really fit in the Birchmere. Because the other thing that Gary did, and he did, he was really the kind of first person to do it. He had a couple mottos. He had more than a couple, but I'll give you a few. The first motto was to his staff. Listen, when people come in and play, when the newcomers come in and play, treat them like they're the headliners because they're going to be the headliners. And that was so proficient or prescient to say that because uh, Guy Clark, who was a great singer-songwriter, was a great singer-songwriter, every time he came to Birchmere, he would bring somebody that Gary would never met before to introduce him. One person he brought was Lyle Lovett. Lyle Lovett has played the Birchmere about him. 50 times, I'm sure. And uh, that's one example, another Texas songwriter. So this idea of treat the newcomers like they're with respect, Gary did that. He also did a couple things. And you'll, if you're reading the one reason the book is very interesting, it has pictures so you actually see what these people look like when they were on stage. It has candid pictures from Gary's collection that you've never seen that you're really in, 
some of them are funny, and they're all kind of fascinating. But it also has interviews with the, a lot of the acts that we did. Gary and I did some, and I did some by myself. We did a lot of them on the phone because of COVID. But Janice Ian's a good example because Janice loves the birch mirror, and she, uh, she was very generous with talking about it. But when, when she first got there with her wife, it was the first time she had ever taken her new wife on tour, she introduced Gary and her new wife to this place and showed her the washer and dryer that Gary put in, installed, like in the mid-70s. You get a menu, and you get to eat the food that people eat when they get to come to the place. Very different. The stars usually get some kind of pasta. And Janice told me, yeah, they went up, up in New York, and she named the club. You know, they expect us to perform on bad pasta. Gary fed them really good food. So he made this place like a home. He would tell me, he says, you know, these people come off the bus, and they don't have – their, their managers are telling them to steal towels from the hotel you know, so they can use the towels to clean themselves up. So Gary says, you know, we, have, we put in showers. We put in a really cool dressing room. Dressing room's great. So when people came there and then they got great food, it became like a family thing. And Vince Gill first came when he was 17 with Ricky Skaggs. He was driving the van. And Vince gave us an endorsement of the book, but Vince talks about his early days, and Ricky does too, about coming to Birchmere, how different the place was because they got a lot of respect. And that became like their home away from home. And then the thing I realized when I was talking to these folks, I'm giving a good example of uh, how Gary broke through what I would call maybe the Nashville uh, control of the axe or the L.A. control of the axe. This is an example is that when he booked Johnny Cash, it was at a time when Johnny Cash's career was not great. Johnny had, had a lot of drug problems. He didn't have any hits. The country music was changing, so Johnny Cash was kind of old hat. And uh, I'm kind of exaggerating that, but it is true that he wasn't at the zenith of his career. And Johnny Cash came and brought you know, his wife and the other two uh, singers, uh, the Carter singers, brought a great band did a great show, and people that met him uh, talk about him being there. So that's like a little section of the book when Johnny Cash came. But then Johnny Cash goes back to Nashville, and he calls up Chris Christopherson and Waylon Jennings and Glenn Campbell and all of his friends and says, you got to go to the Birchmere, man. This place is great. And the stars talk to one another, and the word went out that, if you want to play a good place, go to the Birchmere. And so then, if you even now, who did I say? Oh, well, Ricky Skaggs always starts his concert. He always starts his tour in January at the at the uh, at the Birchmere. And I saw a great band called the Whalen Jennies. You ever heard of them? Three women who just have voices that are beautiful. It's not a country thing. It's like a, a original folk thing. I just saw them the other night. They also play their first show. A lot of acts tour. They hit the Birchmere for the first, break in some new material. They know it's going to be a good audience. And it's just their, their home away from home. And it being in Washington, you get a very interesting audience. And uh, the story I wanted you to tell was when Jerry Jeff Walker showed up and 
then Vice President Gore, who was a, a huge, huge fan, showed up. So talk a little bit about the, the Gore, Clinton, and the Birch. Right. Well, well, the book is full of that kind of stuff. So uh, Al Gore was a senator at the time, and he used to come in to the Birchmere. He lived not far up the street in Alexandria, and his young girls, his daughters were there. And Gary would just see him. Gary talks about it. He, he, at the end of the night, uh, Gore would be sitting in the back. You know, he's just watching the show and by himself a lot of times. And Gary said that they, they were cooking up this deal for a long time where Gore wanted to get some legislation going that would try to fund some of the older Nashville stars who were no longer making hit records. You know, Grandpa Jones was always kind of famous at the Opry, but he wouldn't have any hit songs. You know what I mean? So Gore and Gary were going to put together some legislation <laughs> and uh, get some money to bring the people from Nashville up to the show. You know, well, of course that didn't happen, and Gary never thought it was going to happen, but they were kind of cooking that deal up. So then when uh, Bill Clinton became president, one afternoon, uh, Bill says to uh, Al Gore, well, so what are you doing tonight? He says, I'm going to Birchmere to see uh, Jerry Jeff. He says, well, I mean, Hillary and I will come with you. So they came the first time that was – Gary's interesting because he tells – that it's a blow-by-blow blow in the book. It's fascinating because that's the president and the vice president coming to a place. you know. But it was the vice president Gore secret service. It wasn't the big presidential secret service. Uh, Clinton was just tagging along. So that was kind of low, low on the radar, and they came. And then uh, Kim Ritchie, who was a, a, a country music star, who at the time people thought um, Clinton had a special relationship with her. Uh, I think that was pretty obvious to everybody. So when she came, Clinton came, and it was the presidential you know, Secret Service. And that's fascinating because Gary talks in the book about what they had to do to make that happen. But the Gary said that right behind uh, Clinton, some real hippies, and Gary had not recognized those hippies, but they were in there. And they all turned out to be Secret Service people. And Gary, when Gary found that out, he asked if he could see their guns, and they, <laughs> and they showed him the guns. So, yeah, they were the two presidential visits. And, uh, and what was also kind of interesting for me, what was, was fascinating for me writing the book is that I have, I have a lot of friends. I play music, and I have some friends that are musicians. And Kenny Vaughn is one of the musicians that I love, and he's really great. Kenny Vaughn is Marty Stewart's uh, guitar player. He's real tall and skinny. He's a great, great guitarist. And so I If was, you play with it, Marty Stewart, you've got to be great. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the superlatives are called. I mean, but yeah. they're fantastic. Anyway, I was. They're selling out. By the way, they've sold out Wolf Trap this summer. Two shows, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, and Mart. Well, Marty will come back to the Birchmere. Yeah, that's another thing is that a lot of these people come back to Birchmere. It's not about the money because they can make more money outside the Birchmere. Birchmere only seats 500 people, so uh, you know they can certainly make it in a, in a three, you know, four thousand seat venue. Anyway, that's that's a side point. I was going to talk about Kenny. So I'm talking to Kenny because Kenny's come with Marty all these years. And I said, well, tell me uh, tell me what else has happened when, when you were playing the Birchmere. And he says, well, Clinton came. And I said, really? You were in, you were in Kim Ritchie's band? He says, yeah. 
And so Kenny can tell me what it was like from his perspective when Clinton came. And that's pretty interesting, too. So the interviews with the acts for me was so exciting because the more they told me, and I'm just a sponge for this stuff, the more they told me how the, the interactions and everybody had good. And also, here's the other thing that's interesting about the book, I thought, is that this is one of my favorite stories. So Ray Charles played the Birchmere with a 17-piece orchestra, and that's a small stage, with three Raylettes. And he came, it turned out to be his last performance. He died six months later. It was his last concert. And he came, and Gary said to me, yeah, well, talk, talk about Ray, because he, I mean, Ray sat in the tech room for an hour and a half. And I said, oh. Now, the tech room, if you look at the stage, it's stage left behind the stage. And it's where you have, you can imagine, it has amplifiers, microphones, cables, all kinds of stuff. It's where Bud Gardner, who runs the, the sound for the band, which is harder to do than the sound from the hall, that's where he hangs out and he has all of the stuff in there, Bud Gardner. And... uh so I said, okay. So I started asking, so what's up with Ray Charles? And they all told me a different story. It, they all had a different story of what was going on with Ray Charles. And it, that was early on in the writing of the book. And it dawned on me that everybody sees that place a little differently depending on where they are. You know what I mean? The, the wait staff, they see the people that come and enjoy the show and then the people that run the Backstage with the stars, Casey and those guys, they meet the acts. And then the sound people have a different, they have different, they see in different parts of the elephant, you know, and sometimes they don't all match. It turns out that Ray Charles was, if you look, watch the movie of Ray Charles with uh, Jamie Foxx, it turns out he was having a problem with the band at the time and he was kind of fighting with them. But also had three Raylettes. He was kind of busy in there, and he just wanted someplace quiet to be before the show began, and also someplace close to where he could just come in and be escorted on the stage. That's really kind of the reason why he was in the tech room for an hour and a half by himself with Bud. So, but the other funny thing about Bud is that Bud, I'm a, I'm a big uh, Zappa fan. So when I was talking to Bud and Zappa, uh, Zappa never played there, but uh, his son, Dweezil, and a lot of the Zappa uh, musicians have played the Birchmere a lot, including a thing called the Zappa Band, which is people that play with Frank. They just played there last year. So I'm always, and Steve Vai played. I love Steve Vai. Anyway, I asked Bud, I said, so what was it like when Ray Charles was there? He says, well, I was starstruck. You know, and I and I said, well, I can imagine you were. He says, yeah, well, I was starstruck because Tom Fowler was playing bass for uh, Ray, and Tom Fowler was Frank Zappa's bass player. So Bud and Tom Fowler were out on the out on the bench, you know, enjoying themselves, talking about Zappa, and that was why he was excited. It's kind of funny. Mm. So I want to go backwards a little bit to to Janice Ian. And you mentioned how Janice Ian uh, shows up with her wife. And I guess this was post-Society's Child, the release of that oh, yeah. this was, uh, iconic song of hers. But the reason I raise yeah. it, and then you can go back to when Society's Child came out and her evolution. But Gary, maybe because of Janice Ian or maybe 
because of who he was, Janicean felt comfortable there. But he was a big LGBTQ plus supporter, yes, and brought in a lot of support for that group of artists. He was, and it's something to uh, mention. Everybody who thinks they know the Birchmere, it depends on what groups they like, because uh, at a certain point in the evolution of uh, the Birchmere, a lot of what would be the rhythm and blues and black clubs, a lot of them did not do very well business-wise. There was a point in the 90s when one of the main promoters of the R&B crowd and the uh, R&B artists, he passed away. And Gary immediately hooked in and got people booked, like uh, Joe Sample and Layla Hathaway and all all the great rhythm and blues people. Etta James played there. Read the book. There's a whole chapter on blues, whole chapter on go-go and and grown and sexy music, as they call it these days. So Gary was always booking the acts that were good, regardless of what genre it was. And when Joe Sample and Layla Hathaway play, we called that, it wasn't just me, but Michael Jorick and other people that, uh, you know, are the promoters. They said that was a turning point because once that Joe Sample and Layla Hathaway brought in an African-American crowd and it was packed, then the African-American fans of blues and whatever, you know, they said the Birchmere is our place. So if you went on one of those nights, it was, uh, you know, you'd see a blues crowd. And then if you went, then he also brought in uh, Susan Westenhofer, who was the first openly uh, gay comedian. She was on TV. And Gary booked her because she was good. And uh, he booked good entertainment. And he's a business guy. He wants to have the best entertainment possible. So it's true if you look at the uh, the book uh, in terms of LGBT people that have played repeatedly in common. And uh, John Waters, who I wouldn't call an LGBT entertainer, John Waters is a brilliant director and did Pink Flamingos and seven other great movies. And he's an author and he's an incredible person. And I met him when I went to Maryland University when Pink Flamingos came out. And I kind of know John Waters. But he uh, he interviewed for the book, and he plays there every Christmas. He, that's his tradition. He said, I'm not much of a traditional guy, but I play the Birchmere, and then I have my Christmas party in Baltimore. He lives in Baltimore. And uh, he's there every year, and, and he writes his own show, and he's fantastic. So, yes, yes, LGBT, uh, the diversity of the Birchmere is astonishing. Let's put it that way. The other thing that's – and this shows – See, as you as you peel back the personality of Gary, the thing that struck me is that I, I was just hit over and over again how smart this guy is. All right, here's an example. I'm going through the calendars, and I see things like the Bulgarian String Orchestra or, you know, something. It's all this Irish music I've never heard of and other things from, you know, Europe. And then some, maybe some things from South America. And I'm thinking, I said to Gary, so who comes to see these? He says, man, they're, they're international groups. I said, yeah, I know, but 
you know, you're selling out crowds to see the Bulgarian string orchestra. How does that work? He says, well, we work with the embassies. So what he started doing really early on is he'd find out in the embassies who are the great big hit makers in Bulgaria. And they said, well, it's this Bulgarian, you know, orchestra. Well, are they coming to the States? He says, yeah, well, let me book them. So Gary would book them, and then the embassy would send out to all the Bulgarians on the East Coast. I'm kind of, I'm kind of being very loose with this example, but he did use the the network of the embassies to let people know that really would like to see the Bulgarian orchestra. So then the Bulgarian orchestra plays the Birchmere. It's a sold-out crowd. Everybody's happy. Gary's got another, uh, you know, great act that he's showcased. So that's how Gary kind of brought the different genres in. It's great promotion. And, uh, again, these people want to play the Birchmere because it's the Birchmere. They know this is one of the best places. And you mentioned the best place on the East Coast. I would argue Dar Williams is a, a friend of everybody's at Birchmere, and she's written a really great book about different clubs. And she talks in the book about all the different places that she thinks are the great listening clubs. And she, she would put the Birchmere toward the top of that list. You know, it's an interesting place because it also brought in a lot of sort of what I call or you call local heroes. Jack Cassidy, yeah. Jorm, and Niels Lofgren. So talk about that, because it really was a, a jumping-off point for a lot of people who we now know to be wildly famous and right. were just well, the, beginning there, the Mary Chapin Carpenters and and, yeah. and and the like. Well, Chapin is how I actually, how I first did something with Gary, because when I was going down seeing the Salem scene, I saw him and said hi, but he was busy. I never really talked with him. But it was around 1987. I was playing music in the city, and I knew Nils, and I knew John Jennings. I love John Jennings. John Jennings was uh, married, was Chapin. We all called her Chapin. She doesn't go by Chapin anymore, but we all call her Chapin. Chapin, uh, John was uh, Chapin's uh, boyfriend, but also her record producer, her songwriter, her, her partner in music. And Gary hired Chapin. Uh, to be an opening act, and also sometimes he she sang with other people who played there. But uh, Chapin was very much a fixture at the Birchmere, and I got a call from John, and he said we just got a contract uh, RCA in Nashville. We just got a contract for uh, our, our demo that, that they were shopping around. And I said, how'd you get it? And he said, Gary Olsey got it for us. So I called up Gary. This was in 87. I said, you, uh, Jennings says that you got, uh, you know, you got a record contract. He said, well, yeah. And I said, well, what do you think about that? And Gary says, well, you know, uh, I said, are you going to manage her? Quote, he says, nah, I don't want to manage her. I'd rather publish her because he knew that she was writing these great songs. So it turns out that, the uh, John Jennings had sent the tape down to Nashville, and they had passed on it. And Gary called up a guy named Hamblin. I can't think of his first name, but he was the big RCA Nashville guy. 
Larry Hamblin and said, you know, did you get Mary Chapman Carpenter's tape? And he says, yeah, we passed on that. He says, you should listen to that again because she's good. And so it was because of Gary that uh, she got a contract. Gary, there's a story in the book also. Gary bought her her first guitar. I mean, he really helped her. So that's one example of him helping people get contracts and getting uh, getting discovered. But that's not the only one. A lot of people came and and um, because of the Birchmere and because of the notoriety. Well, Nils was there early in his career. Uh, I'm not sure if he played with Grin. I don't think Grin played, but he certainly came after Springsteen tapped him. To replace Steve Van Zandt. Well, Steve, when, when Steve was there, he told you that whole story, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when he became uh, Springsteen's guy, then... And just for the audience, Stevie Van Zandt decides to step away from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He decides that he's going to do something else with his life, and so Niels Lofgren replaces tapped, uh, Stevie. Yeah. But now, of course, on tour, both Niels and Stevie are in the band. But anyway, so Niels' yeah. is an early entry into the Birchmere. His career is yeah. early, early entry well, into the Birchmere. Well, a couple things. that All of those guys, Niels, Al Petaway, all of the uh, musicians that became very well-known, they all lived around D.C., and they were coming to Birchmere all the time. So Niels was coming to Birchmere. I'm sure that when he was in Grin, I don't think Grin played them. I'm pretty sure Grin didn't play there. But then Nils would come back with other things he was doing when he wasn't touring with Bruce. So Nils has played there, I don't know, 15, 20 times. Uh, and also he he and his brothers learned music around the family player piano, and Nils donated his family's player piano, and that sits in the, in the vestibule or in the bar area. <laughs> the, uh, that uh, it has a little plaque that Nils wrote. So Nils Nils is a very a beloved friend of the Birchmere and and people that people in the that grew up in D.C. I mean, a lot people just know Nils. Nils is great. I mean, Nils is just a great great guy around. I mean, you love Nils Lofgren. Well, so. and last week I missed it, but last week Graham Nash. Please. So yeah. you don't get you don't get Crosby, Stills. We well, can't get Crosby anymore, obviously, because he's passed away. But you don't get Crosby, Stills, and Nash there collectively. But you get each there individually, which right. is another yeah. interesting well, thing about well, the Birchmere. Graham came. I I go back with Graham because I I met Graham at Maryland University when he was in town for new nukes. I got a picture that I took of uh, Graham, Joni Mitchell, and Jackson Brown down at the monument. And I, I, but I met him. He he was all the Hollies were a big favorite of mine, and and in Gary's too. The Hollies, of course, were had the uh, Everly Brothers harmonies, and so Gary knew the Gary loved Graham Nash because he loved the Everly Brothers. But anyway, I uh, while we were working on the book, Graham came with a smaller band. Two of the guys were there the other night, and I got a chance to talk to Graham and take some pictures. I didn't go the other night because it's. Uh, I didn't feel like it was, it's super packed, and I feel like I've seen Graham a lot, and I'll just let some other people go, and so I stayed away from that. But I had friends who went to see him; was fantastic. But Crosby, Bastille's has played there by himself, and also with uh, Judy Collins, and Dave Crosby's played there several times, and Graham has played there by himself. So 
that's one of the group where Gary, in the book, Gary would say, well, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, and Nash have played here, not together, but yeah. uh, and a lot of bands like that, the different people have come in. I was going to say, one of the great shows that I remember seeing recently, and you should talk about him because he's a, a staple, I went to see, I think it was the 50th anniversary of Alice's Restaurant. Uh, the, oh, yeah, the, Arlo. The wonderful Al, Arlo Guthrie. Uh-huh. song that sort of made him when he performed it at Newport. So Arlo is a regular, yes? Yeah, well, number one, Arlo is a regular. Arlo loves the Birdsmere, and he has been there. Uh, you know, if, when you go in the Birdsmere, you've got the, uh, the – have you, have you been there? You've ever seen the posters they have? They have walls in, uh, that surround the inner uh, – Inner area, inner, inner theater area, with posters, and a lot of people are just one there many, many times. Arlo is one that has several posters where he's played different. Um, I was really excited when people asked me what was it like writing the book with Gary, and this is a typical day, very quickly, and it's many days like this. I usually use this as an example. Okay, I'll meet him at twelve, from one thirty until about three. We will talk, interview on what's going on for the day. If it's Arlo, he'll tell me all the stories about Arlo, and I'll be taping them and listening to them. Then he'll take me down to the dressing room, and I'll meet Arlo, and I'll spend time with him, interviewing him. Then I'll watch Arlo and his family band, usually his, his daughter and his son, play with him, watch him do the sound check. Then I'll have dinner, and I'll watch Arlo do a show, and then I'll go home spent a couple hours kind of writing it up, and that was my day. But talking to Arlo in the dressing room was really exciting because I've always loved Arlo. I've met him a couple times. I actually uh, he came down quickly. He came down to Union Station in the in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and he did a, a show at Union Station, and they were he was trying to protest them shutting down some of the uh, – train lines that went up to Northern Maryland because people without those train lines, they couldn't work. They live in Hagerstown. It's just too far to drive. And he was there and he talked to the Senate. And I went to that show at Union Station. I used to live near Union Station and there's a, there was a bar in the old Union Station. I used to live there too. So after the show was over, I went in the bar and got a beer and Arlo just happened to come in and sit next to me. And we, we drank and we talked, and it was so exciting. And uh, he didn't remember that when I went to the dressing room, but he did remember doing that show for the trains. He was telling me about that. But, yeah, Arlo is just amazing. And he had a, like a mini stroke right before he played his last show, and then he retired. So uh, I don't think he's doing music anymore, but I think he do, is doing sort of a, a, a touring, talking tour where he tells stories. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, Arla, Arla Guthrie is just fantastic. I mean, I just love that guy. So the one last thing before we wrap this up that is interesting, and by the way, I am going at the end of the month, you're welcome to come, to see Herman's Hermits. Peter Noon is You love is Peter coming. Noon. You, Peter Noon is fantastic. You will love that show. He is so good. And he posed with our book. He, you'll, you will really love Peter Noon. He's amazing. Well, I think what's nice about it is that Herman's Hermits have a uh, – well, it's really Peter Noon and a band that is sort of Herman's Hermit-ish. Yeah. Um, 
And Birchmere is a venue for them. If you walk around the street and you say, hey, I'm going to see Peter Noon, most people won't know who that is unless they're way too old. Uh, so it's nice that the venue allows you know the Peter Noons of the world to keep playing music and get a good audience because it'll get a good audience. Well, after you see him, you'll you'll see why some of these guys who uh, they have longevity because they are incredible performing artists. You know, a lot of Al Stewart's a good example. A lot of people have a couple hits. You know, their hits on this on the radio. You know, you're the cat, but man, yeah, they sure. are good. They are good. You see them in person, they're good. And you go see them at the Birchmere, you're close. It sounds great. They do an intimate show. It's all intimate. There's not a bad seat in that place, and you're close to the stage. So a lot of people play. I don't think Gary's doing them any favors by hiring them because they are pretty good. You know who's coming to the Birchmere? Justin Hayward. Justin Hayward, the moody, the voice of the Moody Blues. He's going to play Moody Blues songs on that stage, and you can go see him, and you're 10 feet away from him. I mean, he could play. He could play Wolf Trap. He's going to be at the Birchmere. The last sort of category of, of people I want to talk about, which is sort of interesting too, is Hollywood goes to the Birchmere. Cause yeah, you've got, yeah, you've got thought, that too, I right? Was, I thought that was interesting too because, yeah, a lot of people who have uh, played are Hollywood stars, and there's a whole chapter of those those guys. The, my favorite, I think, was Billy Bob Thornton. And Billy Bob Thornton, I've seen him before. Uh, I, I was at the, I saw him one time do the letter. I was at doing the, I, I was at the Letterman show, and he was doing Letterman. He's really, he's a really interesting actor, and he's done such great stuff. Anyway, he came there and played, and his people were. T- he, he loved it, and it's really good story. I won't tell it now, but it's a really good story about him. They wanted him to do a character, Gary, and then wanted him to do a character. And he didn't want to do it, and they finally kind of talked him into it. So he became the sling blade character, right? Yeah, and he became that character. But he became that character, and he just stayed in that character. And they were all creeped out because he became that guy, you know, just right there. In addition right. to Billy Bob Thornton, you've had Kevin Costner play. You've had Woody Harrelson play. And Kevin Bacon and his brother Michael in The Bacon Brothers play a lot. So what's it like when the Hollywood set comes to play? Well, they, they're they all really pretty good. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot more than you just name that they love music. They do this because they love music and a lot of them are very talented. I was surprised by the Bacon Brothers. Yeah, Bacon Brothers. It was kind of funny because uh, I'd never seen the Bacon Brothers. I didn't really know much about them, but I saw that they played the Birchmere like once a year and they're real popular. And I asked the people in the Staff. He says, oh, yeah, they're really great. And so, hmm. So I called and uh, I got Michael. Michael would interview me. And he says, well, you know, why do you, you know, what are you doing? I was telling him. I thought, you know, I uh, kind of thinking, like, who's your audience? Who comes to the audience? He says, all kinds of people come. I said, well, I was kind of being devil's advocate. I said, well, I guess a lot of, a lot of people come because they love Footloose, right? And I I knew that at some point Michael didn't really want to play Footloose. That's what I heard anyway. But that's not true. They do play Footloose. And I thought, well, I want to put. I, I think you should definitely be in there because it's it's. Birchmere loves you guys, and I think that that what I'm going to do, I'm going to check your music out, 
and get Gary to give a little analysis because I kind of think a lot of people might not know how good you are. You know, I've seen your videos and you're like a classical musician. You're playing some really pretty good music there. So it's not just coming to see an actor who you like in Footloose. You guys are a band, right? He says, that's right now. Now you're talking. That's right. I said, okay. So we got him in the book. So we've come to the end of our interview pretty much, but Steve, so what are the takeaways? What should the listening audience do besides buy your book? And if they're in the local area, come to see shows at the Birchmere. But what's the legacy here? Okay. Well, I think they should buy our book because it's Gary's book. And Gary did not want to write this book. He is too humble. He didn't want it to be about himself. And I'm proud not because... I wrote this book. I'm proud because I got Gary to write his book. So that's number one. I want to make a correction there. It's very much Gary Olsey's legacy. I think the takeaway is that you find out something that has worked. You find out why it worked. You find out all of the things that have gone there that are so important to show business and performing arts. It's the history of entertainment. Uh, it's really a history of music in this one book, and it's gotten very good reviews, and I'm very proud of it. But I think I'm kind of most proud, and I think everybody is just feels the same way. It's really good that Gary was able to tell his story before he passed away, because had we not gotten this book together, you wouldn't know a lot of the stuff. So I think it's it's worthwhile. I'm proud that I was a part of it, and. Uh, and thanks for listening to me talk about it. Sure. The book is called All Roads Lead to the Birchmere, America's Legendary Music Hall. Stephen Moore, thank you so much for spending time with us on that set and for sharing the story of Gary Olsey and the creation of this wonderful venue and some of the acts that performed there. Well, thank you, Michael. That was really that was fun for me, and, and I'm, I'm honored to be part of your podcast and and uh, see you at the Birchmere. Indeed. We now turn to my conversation with Peter Noon at the Birchmere as he is preparing to take the stage. So, Peter Noon, very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, young man. So, I'd like to ask you two quick questions. The okay. first is, tell me about your experience with Gary Olsey. Well, I met Gary in the lobby of the Birchmere a um, long, 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 long time ago. And... I didn't know at the time that he was the owner and I was admiring the the pictures of all the people in the history of the club who are playing here. So he was like like a music historian. He knew you know, I didn't I didn't know he was the owner or anything. I was just talking to him as like, Look at this, oh look at that, what this and and every generation of musician had been here, you know, and, and country guys that I know and Dickie Betts and everyone who's that I've ever heard of has played here. And then there was loads of people who you've never heard of who were playing in another room, and he showed me, and he gave me the tour, and I didn't know that he was anything to do with the club. I had no idea. He was, I just got the tour of the place, and they got another little room for newcomers kind of thing, and I thought, what a fantastic place. Whose idea was that? And he goes, it's my idea. And then, I thought, oh, you're the boss, okay. He was just charming and, you know, it was like an older guy just showing me around. I thought he was like a fan of the club, you know. And he took care of his musicians, did he not? Well, you know, we wouldn't be here if they, you know, we've, we've got a, f we've been around a long time and we only work for nice people because, 
you, you know, uh, not being nice to us is disrespectful. Yeah. He, he respected all the musicians who played, no matter what level they were. And they always took care of us in every way, you know, I mean, every part of it. I mean, we always got a parking spot. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. And so here we are now in 2023, and you're still going strong? Yeah, well, we hope to go a lot longer, you know, at least another 10, well, just 10 more years from tonight after the show. Ten, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you for 10 more years. Thank you. I'm so, going to be around. I will still I promise you I'll be around. We, we loved you in 65. Is that when you first came on? 64, maybe. 64. Yeah, August 64. August 7th, 1964, we first record, first record came out. At the time, do you think that you'd still be playing at age 75? You know... You see, I always played music. Music was my hobby. I had two hobbies. I had stamp collections and music. And fortunately, I, my, my favorite hobby was music. And I'm still, I made a living doing my hobby, you know, which is a kind of a dream come true. For sure. I'm, like, I'm, I'm happy I wasn't a train spotter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, you could have made a fortune if you got the right stamp. Yeah, you know, but yeah, I do, I do have the right stamp. My stamp collection is pretty good. Yeah. And I also collect first edition books, signed first edition books. Wow. And somebody gifted me one the other night, a really good one. I go, I can't believe it. I had to tell him, you know, I got Winston Churchill, History of the English Speaking People, but it's, it's first edition, but it isn't signed because he isn't around to sign it anymore. Right. But, you know, that's my thing. I'm, I'm a collector of information, really. Well, we're very much looking forward to your show this evening. I hope you enjoy it. I'm sure I will. I'm sure we will. I always do. And thank you very much for talking to me. I hope you have as much fun as I do on stage. We will, for sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said... I'm Michael Zeldin. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.